0: Psalms chapter number 34, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 9. Psalms chapter 34, verse number 9. We're picking up in the middle of a chapter here, but it begins a sort of trend and a theme in this Psalm that I want us to notice this evening. The Word of God says in verse number 9, Oh, fear the Lord, ye His saints, for there is no want to them that fear Him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life, and loveth many days, that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil, and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Let's pray together. Father, we love You tonight. Thank You for letting us be here in this place. Pray that You'd take the holy and inerrant Word of God and that You'd wield it and use it tonight in our lives. That You'd have perfect and complete liberty, Lord, that we'd not put up any barriers, that we'd not put up any fences in our heart or in our mind or in our life, that we'd not forbid You from touching on any area of our behavior or of the way that we've lived, but Lord, that we would just completely submit ourselves to You and Your Word tonight, and let You have glory out of our obedience to You. And we'll be sure to thank You for what will transpire. Lord, we love You, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to take particular notice of verse number 9. The Bible says, O fear of the Lord, ye His saints, for there is no want to them that fear Him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Now the reason the psalmist invokes the imagery and idea of the young lions here is he's speaking about those that are in a robust season of their strength and of their ability. A lion would be, for uh, most circumstances, the king of the hill, the king of the jungle, the one that would have the prowess and uh, dominance over all other animals. And the psalmist says, you know, there's times that even they, in the energy of their strength, that they don't have their needs met But you know, the person that seeks the Lord, the person that lives for the Lord always has their needs met. Can I say to you tonight, the best way that your life can be a success for the glory of God. When I say success, I, I don't mean in men's eyes. I don't mean in a monetary sense. But I mean that you can live a life that glorifies the Lord, that gives you peace and joy and happiness is to trust the Lord and to seek him. Uh, It'll do more for you than all of your self-effort will do. It'll do more for you than all your wisdom will do. It'll do more for you than all your ingenuity will do. If you'll give your heart to the Lord and trust Him and seek Him, your life will be far better than the man that puts all of his energies into himself and trying to make the betterment of his life his priority. And the psalmist in dealing with this, he zeroes in on a, a thought, a concept we might say, about the way that believers are to live in their approach to life and in their attitude towards the Lord. And he mentions it in verse 9. He says, O fear the Lord, ye his saints. Now he doesn't leave that concept there. He picks it back up in verse number 11. He says he's going to teach us the fear of the Lord. But before we get into the rest of our text, we ought to just say a word about what it means to fear the Lord. Uh, That's language that I think we're probably not very familiar with today. We don't use that terminology about fearing the Lord very often. And when we think of fear, we think of terror. We think of torment. Most of the time when you're afraid of something, it means that it bothers you. It, It afflicts you. It annoys you. It terrifies you. But the context in which the psalmist is using the word fear here is not that of terror, but rather it's that of a relationship, a loving relationship, and an attitude and disposition that we have towards the Lord. I want to ask you this question tonight. Do you fear the Lord? Do you have a relationship, an attitude towards the Lord, not one of casualness, not one of cavalierness, but one of fearing the Lord? Now, what does the psalmist mean by that? Really, the best way that you can make application in your mind, if you were blessed with a good father, uh, and I was blessed with a very good father. I don't know what happened to him since then, but when he was young, you you should have seen him. He was really something. And um, he was a good father, still is a great father. And the relationship that I have and had with my father informs my understanding of what this means. Now, growing up in our home, uh, there was never any absence of affection. There was never, never any absence of fellowship between me and my father. But there absolutely was not a casual or flippant attitude towards my father. Uh, on the few occasions that uh, that happened, I'm still remembering the punishment I got. Amen? And so when we talk about fear, what do we really mean? Well, there's three things we could say, I think, that would give us a crystallized understanding of this concept of a godly fear. The first thing that this fear involves is obedience. If you fear something, you're going to obey it. In fact, fear can be a great motivating factor to cause obedience in people. and Our government's learning that better day by day. Uh, But when you fear something, it means that you you uh, ascend to its its will. You accede to its will. You obey it. Growing up in our home, there was never a debate about whether we obeyed our Father. Uh, There might have been some debate about whether we could get away with it or not get caught if we didn't. But we knew that the default position was always, if Daddy said you ought to do something, then you better do it. You are to obey. I wonder, you know, you say, Preacher, I think I fear the Lord. Well, do you obey Him? Do you live a life of obedience to Him? I can tell you right now, if you live a life of disobedience to the Lord, you're not walking in the fear of the Lord. Uh, You may have a uh, some sort of religiosity, you may even be born again uh, and have a relationship with the Lord predicated on that uh, shed blood of Jesus Christ, but you don't have the relationship that God desires for you to have or that's healthy to have if you're not living in obedience to the Lord. There are a great many people walking around on God's green earth that swear they have a great relationship with God and yet their life is lived in complete opposite to the truth of the Word of God. They can lie to themselves if they want to. They can try to lie to God if they want to. They can lie to others if they want to. But they're not fooling God. God knows whether you fear Him. He can tell by whether you obey Him. So it's marked by obedience. Number two, it's marked by reverence. In other words, a hallowedness in the way that we treat the Lord. Now, one of the things I love about uh, about the Lord is that uh, we don't have to stand on pretense or formality with God. I'm thankful for that. Uh, When you find in the New Testament particularly uh, prayer uh, discussed and, and, and described as a concept it never traffics in this sort of uh, fake and, and pseudo-pomposity. This idea that we have to come to God with all of these lavish titles and beautiful long $10 words and all this ceremony and so on and so forth. In fact, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that we cry unto Him Abba, meaning Father. It's a term of intimate affection. We talk to the Lord like He's right there because He is right there. We talk to Him like He's our Father because He is our Father. But I would say that one of the things that I learned growing up in the house is it wasn't enough to give the right answer, you had to give the right answer in the right way. It wasn't enough just to say yeah, you needed to say yes sir. It wasn't enough just to say okay, you need to say yeah dad, yes sir dad, I absolutely dad, I'd be happy to dad. What were we doing? We were showing a reverence for Him. We were trying in our manner, in our disposition, to show Him that He was valuable to us, that He was important to us, that we were honoring Him. And I wonder in the way that we treat the Lord, can I just say it this way? I wonder if we ever sass God I wonder if we ever talk back to God. You say, preacher, that's silly. We would never do such a thing. Oh, sure we would. If you've not done it, give it 10 minutes. You'll find yourself doing it. At times when God brings something about in your life and the first thing you jump to is to accuse Him, to impugn His love towards you, to indict Him as careless, as as unfeeling, as as untender towards your needs. No, listen, we need to have reverence in the way we deal with Him. And that is not through pomp and formality. Uh, that rather is through an attitude and disposition of trust and faith in Him. If you fear Him, then you have faith in Him. If you have faith in Him, then it's going to cause fellowship with Him and a reverent attitude. So it it involves obedience and it involves reverence. But then I would say number three, and this particularly as the fear that we have to the Lord matures, it brings about deference in our life. You say, now wait a minute preacher, I thought obedience and deference were the same thing. No, obedience is doing what the Father wants when you're told to do it. Deference is doing what He wants before you have to be told. It's to say, I know this is His heart's desire, so I'm not going to make Him run me to the ground and, and, and tan my hide. I'm not going to make Him uh, chasing me. I'm not going to make Him hem me up in the corner and force me to do something. I'm not going to make God treat me like the psalmist said, like the horse with bit and bridle. Instead, I'm going to like the faithful servant, watch His eye and desire to do those things that are well-pleasing in His sight. If you really fear the Lord, you're going to want to do the things that He wants. Now you say, preacher, I don't always want to do the things that God wants. And my flesh doesn't either. But if we really fear Him and if we really love Him, then that fear and that love will outweigh that fleshly impulse to want to do our own thing and our own way and live in our own strength and our own glory and instead to defer to Him. Hey, you'll never be happiest than when God's happiest. You'll never have more joy than when God can joy in your life. Okay, You'll never have more glory in your life than when God's getting glory out of your life. I'm telling you, if you learn to defer to Him, not just make Him chasing you and and sort of wall up your problems about you and force you into obeying, but when you can learn in life to say, what's best for God is best for me, you'll find that your life is a lot more joy. So we have this concept of the fear of the Lord. And that's what the psalmist is dealing with tonight. And I want you to notice that in this thought, he gives us four or five different things that he wants us to understand about the fear of the Lord. And I want you to notice them with me tonight. Look at verse 11. The psalmist says, Come ye children, hearken unto me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Here in verses 11 and 12, we have the principle of the fear of the Lord discussed. Now we've already sort of defined But it's important to note that the psalmist says this is something that can be taught. Can I tell you that only absolute knowledge can be taught? Abstract things can't be taught. Uh, You can teach somebody something that's a matter of perspective, but you've really not taught them anything but your own personal opinion. To be able to teach someone something, it has to be absolute knowledge, concrete knowledge. Hey, I can teach you that 2 plus 2 equals 4. I can't teach you what makes a painting beautiful. I Mainly mean, don't think none of them are. Amen. So he's talking about concrete knowledge. here. He's talking about something that we can learn, that we can discern, that we can understand, something we can wrap our hands and our mind around. And I want you to notice when he's teaching this principle, there's two things he speaks of. The first thing is he speaks of the imparting of this principle. He says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That tells me a couple things. One, it tells me I do not automatically have a clear concept of fearing the Lord. In my natural condition, I won't just do it automatically. I wish I could tell you when you got born again that there was some heavenly impulse that made you act like a Christian all the time in a perfect way. But I'd have to lie to you to tell you that. Uh, Listen, we underestimate the things that are a matter of, of sheer brute force learning and knowledge. And there are certain things in your life that you have to learn how to do. We want an easy answer. We're the microwave generation. We want everything uh, hot and fresh and ready and for $5 all the time. Uh, but the reality is, we're if we're going to fear the Lord in an appropriate way, we have to learn the Lord, learn what He... How can we do what He desires when we don't know what He desires? How can we live in accordance with His Word if we don't know His Word? So it tells me I have to be taught this. I don't just get it by osmosis. I don't get it hereditarily. It's something that has to be given to my life through the truth of the Word of God. So in other words, in our life, we must learn to fear the Lord. But then I would go even a step further. Even if we fear the Lord, that means we can always learn to fear Him better. He talks about children. He uses that terminology in verse number 11, and I believe that there is a figurative import there, but there's a spiritual import. He's talking about people that are children of God. Now, even though the concept of the new birth has not yet been dealt with at this point in the Word of God, it still was a common thing for people to think of themselves, the people of Israel, to think of themselves as the children of God, or the inheritance of God. And so when he talks about them as children, he's saying, you know, you already know the Lord. But I want you to know how to fear Him even better. It tells me it doesn't matter where we're at in our Christian walk. We can always grow more. In fact, the only thing that is absolute uh, concerning the growth in our Christian walk is that if we think we've got there, we've got there. And that don't mean that we're as far as we could be, but it does mean we're as far as we're going to go. You say, preacher, I've arrived. You sure have. I hope you didn't want to go any further, because you ain't going to get no farther if you think you've arrived. The Apostle Paul says, listen, I've not yet apprehended. I've not yet arrived. I'm not there yet. He, he said, I, I realize I need to keep growing and developing in my walk with the Lord. And it's a sad truth. But if you say, preacher, I've arrived, you have. You'll go no further than that. But the truth of the matter is we all should be growing and developing in the Lord. So this is a truth that we all need. We see the imparting this principle. Look at verse 12. He says, what man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? Now, these are rhetorical questions. But why is the psalmist asking these questions? Well, it's informed by this concept of fearing the Lord. And you can almost imagine him. Maybe this sounds irreverent. I don't mean it to, but you can imagine him. Almost like somebody that is that is selling some type of medicine or we could think of like a carnival barker that's crying out and saying, Come ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Step on up, young man, step on up, young lady. Who out there wants to live a life of long days, a life that is blessed, a life that he may see good? In other words, what he's doing is is he's communicating the the object or the source or the the recipients of the truth that he's dealing with. We could say it this way. We see the imparting of this principle, but we see the importance of it. He say, preacher, who's the type of person that wants to fear the Lord and that needs to fear the Lord? Well, the type of person that desires life. The type of person that loves many days. The type of person that wants to see good in their life. You know, something that God taught me, particularly as I became an adult. And I look back and, and I've got some people I went to school with in this room. And, and then there's others that the FBI couldn't find today. And, um, you know, we, we all made our choices. Uh, we grew up in, and, and many of us in the same church and, and grew up in the same school and grew up under the same preaching. And we became adults and we made choices about what we wanted our life to be. And it's hard for you to accept this sometimes, particularly when it's about your family and people you love. Some people just simply don't want a good life. I don't know why that is. I can't understand it. They got the same choices that you have and the same choices that I have. And oftentimes they get to a place in life where they've had the benefit of seeing what poor decision making does. And yet still they persist in their poor decisions. There's no accounting for people's motivation. And it's between them and God why they do the things they do. I'll just say this to you tonight. You want a good life? You better learn how to fear the Lord. It's your choice. Hey, that's how important it is. You want your life to be worth something? Hey, listen, I'm glad I'm going to heaven when I die, but I don't want to go through hell before I get there. I want to live a life that that pleases the Lord and a life that I enjoy and a life that gives glory to God and a life that's not full of, of nothing but sorrow and misery. I want to live a life that glorifies God and that I enjoy. And the way I can do that is by living and walking in the fear of the Lord. Listen, God has a lot for you in heaven, but you know, He's got a lot for you down here too. You just live according to the truth of His Word. So we see the principle of the fear of the Lord. And then in verse 13, the psalmist begins to talk about the path of those that fear the Lord. Now he said, What man is he in verse 12 that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? He says, "That's you? You're a candidate for that? He says, Well, let me tell you how to do that. And he lists three things. One, keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Number two, depart from evil and do good. And number three, seek peace and pursue it. You know, it may seem simple, but that's the path of walking in the fear of the Lord. That's what it's going to look like in a man's life when he fears the Lord. What will it involve? Notice these three things. The first thing is to master your tongue. He says, keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Now, that may seem like a small task until the next time somebody makes you angry. Then you're going to find out how difficult it is to keep that tongue in line. James tells us in the New Testament that if a man can bridle his tongue, he can bridle his whole body. Uh, That it's literally the most powerful force and influence walking this earth. That it's set on fires of hell. Uh, God has literally put it behind the uh, jail cell bars of our teeth to try to keep it in line. And yet still, it cannot be mastered. It cannot be uh, domesticated. It still is always a wild animal. The, the, The propensity to not control our words. So you know what he does? He starts with an, an inward behavior. It expresses outwardly, but an inward behavior. And he says, you know, the first thing you can do is start working on your own life. Start working on the ungodliness in your own heart, hey, what does a man speak but that which is in his own heart out of you know listen uh from the heart come the issues of of our our life and in the New Testament, Lord Jesus says the things that a man speaks have come from his heart, so the psalmist is saying here, if you want to walk in the fear of the Lord, the place to start is in your own wicked heart. And we want to straighten everybody else out. I'm tempted to, I want to something like I could, but i you know I think well, I'd straighten this person out I'd straighten that. Person. Listen, I've got enough to do just trying to straighten myself out. And if we'll start there, we'll find that that's the first beginning step. Now, it's not a matter of in the boldness of the Lord going around and straightening everyone else out. It's saying, Lord, how can I please you? And the first thing we can do is start in our own spirit, our own life. He mentions about mastering our tongue. Then in verse 14, he says this, depart from evil and do good to master your testimony. So he talks about that inward wickedness that manifests through the way that we talk that that is existent in our thought life and in our spirit and in our attitude. But then he goes beyond that and he says you ought to walk away from ungodly things and resolve yourself to live a life of doing that which pleases God, doing good. Listen, there's some folks walking around that it's no wonder their life is in a mess. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's people that tragedy befalls. There's people like Job that was righteous and upright and eschewed evil and, and pleased the Lord and sought God and God permits for trials and afflictions to arrive. But listen, there's some folks, I mean, they, they don't uh, they don't have to write to, you know, uh, try to figure out. They, they ain't got to ask Paul Harvey why their life is in pieces. I mean, you can look at the decisions they've made and tell why their life is in pieces. And I'll tell you this, you keep company with wickedness, it's going to bring sorrow in your life. You walk with evil, it's going to bring evil. You walk with good, it's going to bring better things out of your life. So He talks about mastering your testimony. And we shouldn't be surprised if our life is a mess if we're constantly walking around in the mess of this world. So he talks about mastering your testimony. Then at the end of verse 14, he says this, Seek peace and pursue it. So he talks about mastering your tongue and your testimony, but then he talks about mastering your temper. He says, you know, instead of seeking war, discord, conflict, and trouble, we ought to seek after peace. He says this too, we ought to pursue. it. Now, what are you doing when you're pursuing? You're chasing something that's running from you. Can I tell you, it's not as simple as running up a white flag. There's going to be times that you're going to have to pursue peace in your life. Uh, there's times where it's not just a matter of you not stirring up mess in your life. Other people are going to try to stir up mess in your life. And you're going to have to pursue after peace. How do we do that? We do that by mastering our own temper. Our own tendency to want to fly back, to want to defend ourselves, to want to try to rectify every situation, to want to try to take our part and defend every single thing that uh, is done to us, every single slight, every single slight that's done to us. Instead, what we ought to do is just put ourselves in the hand of the Lord. Now listen, I'm not a pacifist. The Bible is not a pacifist book. The concept of pacifism, as defined by modern-day irreligions, is not a biblical concept. And God doesn't have a problem with a man defending himself. But some people feel as though they uh, if if they don't defend themselves, there'll be no justice done in their life. I got news for you. There's a just God that sits on the circle of the earth uh, that reigns supreme over the universe and he will bring about, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. What should we spend our time doing? Running around trying to right every wrong that's been done to us? Listen, there's people that make that the meat and potatoes of their whole life, the substance of their purpose and being in existence. And those people have no peace. Uh, Because just to be frank with you, there's some matters about which in this life you're not going to get justice. Uh, there's going to be some things in this life that uh, justice will never be done regarding. And you can try your best to try to to exact vengeance in things. Or you can commit it to the Lord who has power not just over the body, but power over the soul and the spirit as well and has promised to avenge. So we see the path of those that fear the Lord. Then look at verse 15. We see the providence over those that fear the Lord. You say, preacher, I understand what I'm going to do if I fear the Lord. But what's the Lord going to do if I fear the Lord? Well, he tells us and he mentions four things. Verse number 15, he says this, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry. We see first off his perception. God watches those that are living righteously. Now you may say, well, now preacher, I thought the Lord saw everything. Yeah, he does. So if the psalmist says that he's looking, that his eyes are upon the righteous, does that not denote to us not just an awareness, but an attentiveness to our life? There's never been anything happen that the Lord's not been aware of. But the psalmist is saying, hey, God pays attention to the life of the righteous man. God is watching. God is monitoring. God is tending to the life of the person that's living for the Lord. Oftentimes, we worry about living a life of fearing the Lord. And we probably don't say it in that way. But we, we'd say, well, preacher, I'd surrender to God, but i got all these other things that I want out of life. Hey, listen, if you'll surrender to the Lord, you can leave those other things to God. God will take care of them. Say, Preacher, I'd love to live this Christian life, but people done me wrong and I just can't let it go. Go ahead and let it go. God will pick it up. Go ahead and serve Him. And you know what you'll find? That when you're living for the Lord, He's paying attention to your life. He's paying attention to the things that you can't pay attention to. He's listening to the things that you can't listen to. And you have the promise of God. If you'll serve Him, you have the God of all glory at your disposal to meet your need. So I see his perception. Verse 16 says this, The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Now there's probably a couple things the psalmist is wanting us to get here. One is probably that when we don't walk in the fear of the Lord, we're walking contrary to God. We literally have God working against us in our life. But I think also we could note here the Lord's protection that if we will trust Him and seek Him and seek peace and pursue it and live for Him, then His face will be against them that do evil. Not just moral evil, but evil in the sense of offense or affliction towards us to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. I'll tell you this, man. Christians are way too distracted by the noise of the world today. And I'm not just talking about temptation. I'm not just talking about the culture of the world. But I'm talking about we spend all our time wringing our hands over things beyond our control, but also not out of keeping with what the Bible says the world would be. There's nothing going on in the world right now that has surprised God. And yet we spend all our time just absolutely devastated over the fact that sinners behave like sinners, that the unrighteous behave like the unrighteous, that wicked people behave like wicked people. Uh, Can I tell you, listen, you can trust the Lord with all those matters. doesn't mean we can't have an opinion. doesn't mean we shouldn't have an opinion. But it does mean that we can trust that the Lord is protective over those that have put their care in His hands. Then look at verse 17. He says this, The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. Now, he's just sort of dealt with this back in verse number 15. He said, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and His ears are open unto their cry. But in verse 15, he says, The Lord hears. In verse number 17, he says the Lord answers. He delivereth them out of all their troubles. Can I just say it this way? And here's, for if you keep in notes, his piteousness. But can I just say it this way? He cares. He cares. When nobody cares, he cares. When we're tempted like the psalmist, say, no man cared for my soul. If we're a born again believer, it's a lie for us to say it. Because the Lord does care. He has compassion. He's moved with compassion for our needs. And then notice verse 18. I like this. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Man, I like that word nigh there. You know what it means? It means near. We see in this, in other words, you say, Preacher, if I fear the Lord, I know what I'm going to do, but what's He going to do? We see His perception. He's going to watch and pay attention to your life. We see His protection. He'll take up your portion. He'll be your shield and buckler. His piteousness. He cares. He's interested in your life. And He's moved with compassion. But then we see His presence. You know what He'll be? He'll be near to you. I find this, that all of the the fear, godly fear, righteous fear that I had for my father, never produced a cold relationship between me and him. Uh, It never caused him to desire to be aloof from us. And though there were times when, because of disobedience, we couldn't have the fellowship that I may have desired to have in that moment, after the chastening was passed, there was always a restoration of fellowship and closeness and nearness. I'm telling you this, you want to be close to the Lord, fear him. Fear Him, live for Him, love Him, put Him first in your life. So we see the providence over those that fear the Lord. And now verse 19 introduces something we didn't think we'd see. The psalmist says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. and that interesting? The psalmist has been saying, all your problems are going to be fixed if you fear the Lord. Then he turns around and deals with the problems of those that fear the Lord. Now, I hope I haven't given you the wrong impression. I hope I've not made you think if you serve God, you ain't going to have no problems. Because your Bible doesn't teach that. I'm certainly not teaching that tonight. But we do see the perspective through which these problems are to be seen. Now, first off, we just have to note the abundance of them. Do you know that a man living for God has problems still? A man living for God might have as many problems or sometimes even more problems than the person not living for God. But did you know this, that the yoke that you bear as a child of God is lighter and easier than though it may be laden down with burdens and problems, it is lighter and easier than the empty yoke that rests on the shoulders of the lost man. Uh, In other words, you're able to bear them better. And after all, that's what matters. What matters is how can we bear up under these problems. So notice he doesn't say a few. He says many are the afflictions of the righteous. If you think by living for God, you're going to erase all the problems from your life, you're wrong. It'll erase the problems that are caused by your disobedience. It'll erase the problems that are caused by your willful sinfulness. But it's not going to erase all your problems in life because it is just a a condition of the human experience that we have problems. And that's true for the righteous man as well. We see the abundance of the problems. Now you say, preacher... No, I don't want no problems. Maybe I ought to just duck my head under the radar, bury it in the sand, pretend, and just go on and try to be mediocre. No, uh, listen, you better serve the Lord because we see there's an abundance of the problems, but there's an answer to the problems as well. He says, but the Lord. Man, I love that. There's so many times in your Bible that uh, we say it this way, God butts into a situation. And, and this is another one of them. Hey, the, the, the righteous man, he has afflictions. There's no question. But the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Now somebody's going to say, now wait a minute preacher, I, listen, I, I'm saved and I'm living for the Lord and He ain't delivered me from all of my afflictions. Well, uh, you know, the story ain't ended yet. One of these days you're going to be delivered out of all of it. I remember hearing a man say one time years ago, he said, don't ever begrudge the lost man what pleasures he has in this world because that's the best it's going to get for him. You know that your problems that you're facing, I'm not saying it won't get measurably worse relative to what you're experiencing in this moment, but you understand that the sufferings of this life are the worst that it gets for us. After this, man, hey, there's no problem you've got that heaven won't fix. He's going to deliver us from all of them. So I see the answer to our problems. And then look at verse 20. This is interesting. He says this, He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now, you probably can't say that, but you know, so far by the Lord's grace and help, and I ain't superstitious, let's go ahead and knock on that wood right now. I've never broken a bone in my life, but it's sure not. Somebody's going to hit me right in the mouth when I leave out of here. But uh, yeah, that's right. But it's sure not because I've always feared the Lord. By the same token, we could probably go just pew by pew and find people that's better Christians than me that've broken a ton of bones. So what application is being made here? Well, listen, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that the psalmist is peering over sort of the, the railing of prophecy and he's looking forward to something far in the future. And this is what we would call a messianic statement. This is a prophecy that regards the Messiah. And we know in the New Testament that never the Lord Jesus had a bone broken. In fact, they tell you, most doctors and biologists would tell you that in the piercing of the nails through his hands, it wouldn't have been the palm of his hands, but if it was to be pierced through the wrist, it would go directly in between those two bones there. And the Bible tells us with no less authority than when it says in John 3.16 that God loved the world. It also tells us that there was never a bone in the Lord Jesus that was broken. There's symbolic reasons for this, uh, spiritual reasons for this that regard him being a, a perfect sacrifice for us, but, but suffice it to say tonight, this is a messianic prophecy about the Lord Jesus. And you say, preach, that's good and everything, but what does that have to do with me? Well, don't you see it's got everything to do with you. I've been preaching however many minutes I've been standing up here, and I was talking about you the whole time. And then now here I come along and I'm talking about Jesus. But can I ask you this? If you're a child of God, have I ever really quit talking about you in the first place? In other words, the thing that's being said about Jesus here, the thing that's being said about you is also being said prophetically about the Lord Jesus. And do you know that when Christ died on Calvary, you became a partaker in his person? In other words, let's say it this way. We see the abundance of the problems, the answer to our problems, but see, and then we see the assurance in our problems. So here the psalmist, because he knows the Lord and loves the Lord and has had righteousness imputed to him because he he is a believer on God, he is being spoken of in the same vein as the Savior is. He's being treated just like the Savior would be treated. And it's a reminder to me that as a child of God, we likewise are treated as the Savior is. We are literally made kinship with Him. Uh, Our fate, our destiny is anchored to His person and to His promises. Can I tell you this? Whatever problems you're facing, understand that you're not going through them alone. The Lord's going through them with you said preacher these problems are going to sink me now listen you know why the uh, the storm couldn't sink the boat there in John chapter number 6 cuz Jesus was on board <laughs> hey, it wasn't that bo- boats sink all the time but ain't never one of them sank the son of god and uh, listen he is present he's on the boat of your life if you've been born again our destiny our our future is yoked is tied is merged with His. So we see some assurance in our problems. That we can come to Him, we can come to the Lord, just as Christ came to the Lord. We can come to our Heavenly Father, just as He came to the Heavenly Father. And just as He was regarded, so also are we regarded. So we see here the problems of those that fear the Lord. And finally, and I'm done tonight, I want you to notice this closes with the promise to those that fear the Lord. He says this, evil shall slay the wicked. doesn't look like it right now all the time. Sometimes it looks like they get away with it. Sometimes it looks like they prosper through it. But the Bible says that evil shall slay the wicked. And they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of His servants. None of them that trust in Him shall be desolate. In other words, there's coming a day God's going to write all this. There's coming a day He's going to set all of this straight. Listen, the wicked may advance in this world at this moment, but this world is passing away in the lust thereof. He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Notice two little thoughts here. One, think about what we're spared of in verse 21. Evil shall slay the wicked. Say, so preacher, sometimes it'd feel good to get out and sin. Well, maybe for a little bit. It has pleasure for a season. But sooner or later, it brings heartache and sorrow and death into the life of those that are involved with it. The fear of the Lord spares you of all that. Hey, listen, man, I'm so thankful God didn't let me get into most of the things that I wanted to get into. I mean, there's been far more things I've desired for my life that were wrong than there have been that have been right. In fact, it seems like the happier I that that the the less that I have opinions about my own destiny in my own life, the happier I am. The, the more I can just sit back and say, oh Lord, whatever You want out of my life, I'm content with it." The more joy that I have in my life. You know why? Because when we do our own thing, we bring only heartache and sorrow into our life. That's why He's telling us to fear the Lord. He says, "They that hate the righteous shall be destined." When we fear the Lord, we're sparing ourselves of much sorrow and much heartache. But then notice what we are saved to. He speaks what we're spared of. The evil shall slay the wicked. They that hate the righteous shall be desolate. Then he speaks of what we are saved to. The Lord redeemeth the soul of His servants, and none of them that trust in Him shall be desolate. And he said those that hate the righteous will be desolate but none of those that trust in Him will be desolate. And the psalmist used the term redeem here. Now, I love this term redeem, redemption, the concept of it. It has the idea of purchasing something at a price. But, you know, sometimes the word redemption also has the connotation of laying claim or taking possession of something that has already been purchased or paid for. Uh, You might have won a prize at some time in your life and they called you to come down to wherever it was at and redeem your prize. And just as the word saved has different tenses and concepts to it, The word redemption has different senses and concepts to it. Uh, Sometimes it's speaking about paying a purchase price. Sometimes it's talking about being a substitutionary sacrifice. But sometimes the word redemption has with it the idea of claiming or taking possession of something that already belongs to you. And can I remind you of this? Listen, Christ bought you on Calvary. He redeemed you and then He redeemed you and one day He's going to redeem you. You've been redeemed. You're being redeemed. And one of these days, you're going to be redeemed. In other words, there's come a the day that He's going to lay, lay claim on that life that He's bought and paid for. And He's going to take us out of this wickedness. He's going to take us out of this weary world. And none of them that trust in Him shall be destined. Preacher, why should I fear the Lord? Because you've got a lot more in heaven than you've got here on earth. That's why you ought to fear the Lord. It's not about this life. Now, listen, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not advocating we lock ourselves away in some monastery and take a vow of silence and pretend like there's not a lost and dying world out there to love and to reach with the gospel. Of course, we are to be in this world, but we're not to be of this world. But I'm afraid along with being in this world, some of us have just got to kind of being used to being of the world. Having our whole life wrapped up in this world and its policies and its systems and its values and, and, and the things it treasures and loves. Instead, we ought to try to disassociate ourselves from that. Say, my life's not about pleasing me. And it's not about living in the fear of man. It's about fearing the Lord, revering, obeying Him, revering Him and giving deference to Him. Let's pray together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want to pray and I want you to have an opportunity to deal with the Lord this evening. If He spoke to your heart about something, and likely He did, likely He spoke to you about something in your life, Might not have been all those areas we touched on, but there might have been one or two areas or a single one even that he dealt with you about. Some area of your life you've not been walking in the fear of the Lord. I want you to deal with him about that tonight. I want you to let him deal with you. Father, bless this time together. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. with.